Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And today on the program, some people say program, some people say program. Uh, which anyway, We will be talking about the state of our roads and bridges. There is no doubt that the majority of roads and bridges around the country are in need of major improvements. There's a website, it's called Money Geek, and they put together a study and it ranks all the road conditions by state. It's pretty fascinating, pretty interesting. And I'm going to have Doug Milnes. He's uh, going to be on in just a bit. He's the head of data analytics for Money Geek. And we're going to talk about the roads, the bridges, the infrastructure around the country. And I also have a uh, funny question in the mailbag I want to address as well. I'll get to that coming up in just a bit as well. Have you heard of the drive a car until it runs out of gas challenge? This is the first time I've heard of this challenge. It's a, well, this is apparently a thing. And they say the uh, social media challenge, this drive your car until it runs out of gas, may have inspired a 12-year-old boy to take his 7-year-old cousin on a 100-mile joyride. This is out in New York. And for more than five hours, the two kids, including the 12-year-old driver, were able to elude police and make it all the way from New York to the New Jersey-Delaware border. Police had to eventually actually give up chasing the Range Rover they were in when they realized the kids might wreck because they're inexperienced drivers and they were going pretty fast. So now you have 12-year-olds who are able to drive a Range Rover 100 miles. Now, the kids were first reported missing at 9 a.m. from their home in Queens. Police used the Easy Pass, that is the, uh, at least in New York State, many areas of the Northeast, uh, the toll transponder and their license plate readers to track the vehicle. They saw it on the Verrazano Bridge around 11 a.m. And so New Jersey State Troopers spotted that SUV. They were looking for it. They started flashing the lights. They turned on the sirens to get the driver to stop, but the boy kept speeding off. (laughs) So police eased up on the, uh, off the pursuit. So they didn't want to spook the kids and for the safety of the uh, the kids, so they didn't get into a wreck. So then at 12.15 p.m., the 12-year-old, he had to stop at a convenience store, and what he did is he used his dad's credit card to buy some cookies at a rest stop. <laughs> because why wouldn't you? You have just went on a 100-mile joyride, and you need some cookies to celebrate. Well, the credit card was uh, flagged, and the kids were found by the police. The two cousins were taking, taken to an area hospital, And then the local police took him to the precinct for some questioning before they were returned and reunited with their family. It turns out the whole incident may be part of this social media challenge called Take a Car and Drive It Till It Runs Out of Gas. And from what I could find on the internet, it it started with this YouTube creator. Uh, It's the website or the YouTube site is Daily Driven Exotics. That's where the first that's the first incidents I saw of this thing. And there's a video on there where it says Dave bet Damon $10,000 that his Lamborghini is more fuel efficient than the 2020 Toyota Supra. Seems seems odd to bet $10,000 on on such a thing. 
But they decided, these two people, to put both cars to the ultimate test, going from San Jose to Los Angeles, not stopping for fuel, and to see who runs out of fuel first. After watching some of the video, I had to fast forward to the point where apparently Dave won this challenge, and now other people who have seen this YouTube video are trying to replicate the challenge by taking their car and driving it out as far as it goes, with and then running out of gas. Now I'm way too practical to do any of any of that activity, and and my car basically tells me. I think most cars now tell you how far you can go on a tank of fuel. And I don't want to be stranded on the side of the road, even if I had let's say an extra gallon or two uh, a gas can in the back, where I really didn't have to worry that let's say I did technically run out of gas, that I would have some gas and you fill it up the, you fill it up, and so you can make it to the next gas station. I'm still not going to do that. I actually, I don't think it's very good for the car to go to, to suck the last of the gas out of the tank. There's some sediment in there, and you really shouldn't do that. It's not, it's not great for your car engine. And so anyway, this is, what, this is what, it's better than eating Tide Pods, I suppose, right? So anyway, I'm out. I'm out of that. Uh, I'm out of that challenge. With COVID nineteen vaccinations starting to be distributed, there are some estimates floating around how fast air travel might resume to the pre pandemic levels, where airlines and airports and everyone who services travelers they actually they you know, they all have a lot of it at stake on this question. But most of the estimates that I've seen seem more like guesses than real analysis of when we're going to start seeing air travel again. I was even seeing a, a headline, I thought I saw it on TV this morning, where it said that business travelers, they're not traveling, obviously, right now. And while they hated the business travel, they're also missing the business travel, which is kind of a funny, a funny juxtaposition. Now, one of the best ways to estimate how well businesses will do in the future is looking at the bond rating agencies, since they have a financial stake in the game. And Fitch Ratings, they released their new assessment at the end of November. Fitch's best base case prediction about airport traffic says by 2021, so at the end of 2021, we'll be at 65% of pre-pandemic levels. And we'll be at 80% in 2022 up to 90% in 2023, and then back to about 100% in 2024. So one, two, three, at the end of four years, we should be back at around 100% of pre-pandemic levels for air traffic. And, and those seem like plausible numbers, given that it appears we have uh, several vaccines in distribution. People are getting a little bit more comfortable with sanitation on the aircraft, um, and some of the airlines are starting to put more planes into service. The 737 MAX is back in service. And so we are going to see some more capacity hitting the airlines. And that will bring in more travelers because you're, you're gonna, they're going to lead uh, the travelers and, and make sure that they have enough capacity. What, what's still unknown, though, is whether most of the lucrative category of traveler, the business traveler, will be permanently reduced. Now, experts estimate business travel could be reduced from anywhere from 20 to 35 or so percent. And obviously, that has a ripple effect on leisure travel as business travelers help subsidize vacation travel. Without business travel, your vacation travel is going to cost a lot more money to fly, to drive, to get in the hotel, to get in the resorts. All of that 
is really subsidized by the business traveler and by conferences, and that's where they're really making their bread and butter. And the real loser in all of this are the big airlines that depend on business accounts and the frequent flyers and all that money that comes into them from these uh, business travelers, especially the international business traveler. They're really the cash cow for the legacy carriers like Delta and United and American. And by contrast, the low-cost carriers and ultra-low-cost carriers, Frontier, Spirit, uh, Southwest, they have much better prospects for recovering and perhaps exceeding the 2019 passenger volumes in the near future since many people traveling now are really for vacations and visiting friends and relatives. And and that can't be replaced by a, a Zoom conference. I mean, the ocean just isn't the ocean over Zoom. There's so much earth cam that you can watch because uh, it doesn't really take you there. As much as I like watching the earth cams, especially the ocean ones, it's just not the same as being in the ocean. One of the interesting parts of this whole rating report from Fitch is that they expect the toll roads to be back up to 100% of the pre-pandemic level by the end of 2021. So they're expecting a lot of people to be driving once again when the vaccine is in most people. We're getting close to herd immunity that the businesses are going to start opening up again. Restaurants, office buildings, all that stuff is going to start opening again, and they'll see more people on the roadways. I I do think there will be a permanent shift in traffic, though, in the future, but more and more people will be going back to an office of some sort, and maybe not every single day, but at least a few days a week, And, and the people and businesses who serve those workers, who have been crushed by what has happened here over the last year, will be coming back as well. That little coffee cart or sandwich cart that was in the office building in the lobby. Those people will be coming back because right now they, they there's no need to be there because there's very few people in the office. So we could see a, a, a really an economic boom by 2023 and beyond. We could have the roaring 20s once again. <laughs> Isn't that what happened after the Spanish flu pandemic? A lot of people died. The, the country started healing. And, and then everybody was so happy, and then it, we were in this economic and lifestyle boom in the early and mid-20s, before the bottom dropped out at the end of the 20s. Um, hey, bring on the zoot suits and the foxtrot once again, right? Oh, reminds me of my old friend Reggie McDaniel, who um, you used to work at the radio station at KOA Radio when I was <laughs> working there, and he would do this... Uh, entertainment show, and he was the funniest guy, and he would wear these basic <laughs> these zoot suits. I mean, these full length, these really big uh, suits. It was it, it was quite the show when when Reggie would show up. Uh, speaking of toll roads, here in Colorado, the DOT has decided the only way they want to construct more lanes on a highway or make improvements to a highway, add more capacity, is to add these managed toll lanes. These are the lanes that can be. Uh, some of them can be free for high occupancy vehicles and buses, but then if you want to be by yourself or have, let's say, just two people in the car, then you're going to have to pay for the privilege of driving in that lane. Some of them, or at least around here, are express lane only, and they don't have the HOV lane option. But now around the country, there are 60 variable priced managed lane projects in operation. This is the new big thing around the nation. And one of the major problems we've had here in Denver with these lanes is that drivers want to use them because 
Obviously, traffic is moving so much faster on them, but they don't want to pay for the toll. So what they do is they weave in and out when they because they know where the toll camera is. And so they can just weave out of it because there is nothing separating them from that express lane and the left lane of, of through traffic except some paint markings on the road. There's no, like, in, I, th I think it was in Florida when I saw some of the express lanes, they're, they're somewhat, they're soft barrier separated with those soft plastic poles. Well, we can't really do that here in Colorado because of the snow. You can't, you'd have the plow drivers just plowing up, up right, out, right, out of the, right out of the pavement. But because of that, because of the weaving in and out, we see a lot of wrecks caused us by this behavior. And one of the most challenging aspects of these priced managed lanes is enforcement, especially when there's that HOV component. Well, there are four technologies now that have been spotlighted at a joint webinar in the International Bridge, Tunnel, and Turnpike Association and Transportation Research Board. Now, three of these focused on enforcement and one on verification, because how dare you use this express lane and not pay for it? Well, Transurban has modified its enforcement system for their I-95, I-35, I-495 toll lanes in Northern Virginia. And currently, the customers can switch their transponder setting between carpool and solo. I have that same option on my transponder where I can switch it from HOV to toll. That's what it says, either toll or HOV. I always leave it on HOV because if I'm going to be in a toll lane where they're always charging a toll, then uh, I'll... I'm going to be paid. I guess I'll, I'll get the toll. But there are sometimes when most of the time when I'm driving that car, it's in my wife's car. Uh, we're driving as a family, so we would be an HOV vehicle. So that's why I just leave it always on the one side. Anyway, many customers leave their transponder in the carpool setting, like me, even when they're just traveling alone. Not like me. <laughs> why they while their systems accurately identify violators. The state police can then pull over only about two out of every thousand violators. And that's been a big problem here. As I've talked to the state patrol, they say there's just no safe place for them to stage and then pull over drivers if they determine somebody is violating the law. And additionally, the beacons that spot these potential violators are set in locations that the violators know the location, so they'll just jump out, jump in, and there's really not a lot of uh, enforcement action that can be done about that. So Transurban has recently implemented several steps to improve their enforcement for its top violators. It uses repeat violator beacons that flash a different color, which has increased compliance now by 80%. <laughs> Transurban sends email notifications that have increased compliance to another 1% and has added enforcement signs that have increased compliance by 3%. The toll violators can also choose to enroll in this toll correction program where customers that are in that lane, the express lane, the HOV lane, and they're riding alone, they quote unquote, air quotes here, uh, forgot to switch their transponder can pay the toll, but not any extra fees. In Los Angeles, the LA Metro has installed infrared cameras for I-10 and I-110 for their HOV lanes. And during peak periods, three or more persons travel free of charge. So if you have three or more people in the car, it's free. During off-peak periods, vehicles need only two people to use them free. Now, before adding the cameras, the violation rate was as high as 30%, and the cameras correctly identifies 
about 90% of the violators, and in the next few years, LA Metro expects the accuracy to reach 95%. So they basically read the heat signature of how many people are in the car. So if you have a dummy in the car, unless you're heating it up, <laughs> it's not going to count as a person, and you're going to get dinged for that. So how many times have we seen that where somebody tries to get away with putting a, a dummy all dressed up in the <laughs> passenger seat to get away with uh, riding in the express lane? And that program is, is not, though, without costs. The operations and maintenance, it's about $11 million a year just to get people to comply and not skip out on these tolls. So at what price is it too expensive to enforce compared to how much money, how much revenue are they losing with the people who are skirting the system? That'd be an interesting story to, uh, to follow. Now, the North Central Texas Council of Governments, they take a different approach, stressing the occupancy verification, not enforcement. So it puts the burden of proof on the occupants to de- demonstrate that they are a carpool and not just riding by themselves. So per Texas law, the system cannot be used to register a violation or collect revenue, and carpools get a 50% discount during d- uh, peak periods. I mean, it's interesting to see the different approaches in dealing with HOV, HOT, express lane violation cheating. It's going to be really interesting to see if one of those emerges as a clear and most cost-effective approach, because how much money, as I said, is it worth throwing at, so how much are you spending to uh, compared to how much are you collecting? It'll be interesting to see how, how all that plays out. And, you know, there's no doubt that the majority of roads and bridges around the country are in need of major improvements. Road infrastructure is a place where our daily lives are impacted by fiscal policy, and the website Money Geek has analyzed infrastructure spending and road quality by state, and they put it all together in a study tiled, titled Road Conditions and Spending by State. <laughs> Does more money mean better roads? Well, I wanted to know the answer to that question and many other questions, so I invited Doug Milnes. He's the head of data analytics for Money Geek to talk all about it. Doug, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks for having me today. All right, so before we talk about the exact lists of the states that have the best and the worst road conditions. We'll hold that for just a bit. First, sure. let's talk about this relationship between spending and road conditions. Does more money buy a state better infrastructure? Not necessarily, Jason. Uh, you know, it's really interesting when you look at the underlying data, um, states spend on their roads uh, in proportion to the amount of traffic that they have. Um, so you think about uh, states that have lots of cars uh, driving all over the place. Uh, they're going to spend more money than states with less cars, um, even if they have the same amount of highway miles. Uh, so more more densely populated states are going to have to pay more because the, the key driver of your road conditions is actually wear and tear from vehicles driving all over them. It's interesting because the state's getting hit hard by the pandemic right now, and and, and traffic is lighter in general right now, mm-hmm. but they're also being hit by pandemic costs, which are straining their budgets, and you, and you would think that the states that are being hit hardest by the pandemic are going to have these higher costs to deal with, and then lower revenues to go into the roads. So maybe this is going to be a start of even worse road conditions to come in the future. 
It could be. Uh, most uh, road funding actually comes from gasoline taxes. Uh, so those taxes are going to be are levied, you know, at the pump uh, with the with the theory that, um, you know, the more gas uh, you buy, it's a sense uh, is roughly, you know, how much you're actually using the roads around you. Um, so states levy uh, gasoline taxes, as does the federal government. Uh, those all come together and then they get used to uh, maintain and improve roads. Um, so, yes, you're right. As, as traffic has gone down. Um, maybe that wear and tear on the road, you know, has gone down and theoretically the gas uh, revenues have gone down, but it doesn't fix the state of the of roads today. Um, and, uh, and what we've seen uh, in the recent couple of years is that as cars and trucks have become more um, uh, efficient, right, they have a higher MPG uh, today than they did before, those taxes that are getting collected are less. So think, think you know, all the way to the extreme, and you know, maybe someday everybody has an electric car or um, a car with an MPG of you know, you know, 50 MPG. Uh, there, those gasoline levies are going to generate less and less revenue over time as the fleet of uh, cars in America become more efficient. And one of the big problems, as you're as you're really alluding to right now, is when states are relying mostly on gas tax. And, and we're getting more fuel-efficient cars. We saw that shift to more fuel efficiency when gas was over $4 a gallon. You remember that? It wasn't too long ago. Yeah, then we yeah. had $4 a gallon gas, and, and everybody was crying for better efficiency. And now General Motors is, is basically going all electric. California wants to have only electric cars sold in the state by 2035. You, you got to think that there's going to be a shift in how states are going to fund their roads in the future with uh, with fewer people buying ga- as much gas and with uh, more people buying electric. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, as as that shift happens over time, the the revenues from gasoline taxes are going to, you know, not going to be able to keep up. And uh, you actually be putting if you were to do something like continue to increase gas taxes, you're putting a bigger and bigger burden on folks who can't buy new cars, um, and so. That change has to happen at some point. You know, how we fund our roads in America needs to change to reflect how, um, you know, how our technologies at work are, are, you know, changing our lives. And, you know, we had a, um, a, a lot of talk at the beginning of the Trump administration that we were going to see billions and billions of dollars flow into transportation and infrastructure, more to improvements and upkeep over new technologies, well, that never really materialized. It sounds like now the incoming Biden administration also wants to spend money on infrastructure, but I'm hearing more about it advancing electric cars and more public transit. And while a lot of people do want money to go into those other technologies and into transit and do electric cars, don't we still need money to repair what's already falling apart? So I, I think that maintaining the infrastructure, those new technologies, not necessarily public transit if you're if you're putting in rail, rail um, but the new technologies like electric are going to be running on the roads that we drive on today. Um, so it's important to maintain them, right? The the worse your roads, uh, the more uh, oper- the higher the operating costs. Uh, roads can become more dangerous. There could be more accidents. Um, so it's important to maintain them, even if you're moving towards electric. I think you know infrastructure spending has a as a high 
uh, what they call a multiplier, which, which basically means that for every dollar you spend on infrastructure, it creates more dollars inside of the system. So, uh, you know, the folks who are working on roads uh, today are going to buy goods and services um, from other businesses, and those businesses are going to go and buy other uh, goods and services from other businesses. And so that, that dollar spent on roads today um, actually kind of it kind of moves through the system and it, it moves through up to five times, right? So a dollar spent on infrastructure roads uh, could, you know, can multiply through at more than five times. So it can be, it can be like spending five times what you're spending um, on the infrastructure side. So I, I think, you know, as we think about uh, the economic difficulties uh, that our country is facing and that folks have today, um, you know, this is infrastructure can be a really good uh, federal stimulus. It usually comes from the federal government, uh, and it's a way to put uh, dollars into to people's pockets and also make uh, the roads we work on, you know, more effective. And you know, over time, that keeps the our costs of delivering goods and and travel lower. I think there's there's a lot of good reasons to do it. I'm speaking with Doug Milnes. He's the head of data analytics for Money Geek about what states have the best and the worst roads. And as we start to talk about these states with some of the best and worst roads, I found it really interesting that your team found that the 10 states with the worst roads, and I'm including the District of Columbia in there as, as a state, uh, it, they spent three times more on adjusted basis than the 10 states with the best roads. Right. Uh, they did. Uh, those 10 states are the District of Columbia, California, Rhode Island, Hawaii, Wisconsin, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Michigan, and Washington State. Um, and those those states do spend more than the ones with the, the best roads. Uh, you know, the, the kind of the leading, uh, you know, all, all three, all 10 of those states there are, are, you know, together, taken together on the averages are pretty densely populated. They have a uh, pretty big uh, population. They have a pretty big population of drivers um, and they are uh, driving on roads uh, and wearing them down. Um, so they have to spend um, more per lane mile, like per per mile of, of highway at a higher rate uh, than other states. Uh, the ones with the best roads are Oklahoma, Idaho, Indiana, Alabama, New Hampshire, uh, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Florida, for example. Um, Florida, you know, has a has a higher spend per lane mile than than the other ones that I listed um, on the best road side, but they they all have lower investment required per lane mile. And it's it's really um, to to my mind the hypothesis that you know we are the the spending happens in proportion to the amount of traffic that the that the roads get. And those ones with the worst roads are getting a lot of traffic and they're not able to keep up with the amount of traffic that they have versus the the revenues that they're getting to take care of the roads, like we talked about earlier. Right. But when you're looking at the top 10 worst states, Wisconsin has a lot of open space. So does New York State, even though I would obviously argue that there's a lot of people in Manhattan and, and in the five boroughs and there are yeah. in the rest of New York State. New Jersey oh, is fairly wide open. Michigan has a lot of open space, as does Washington State. And, and as you look at these these states, they, they spend a lot of money, but they are also, not, not to go, I, I guess, crazy political here, but they, they're also, as, as, I'm, as I'm looking at these, they're Democrat-leaning states. And so I wonder mm -hmm. if that plays anything into uh, how much they spend versus how much, how bad the road conditions are. 
You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, that road infrastructure and whether you spend on it or not, um, you know, potentially because it is spending might be a more, uh, just call it a Democrat issue, but I think, you know, stimulus spending and infrastructure spending could be uh, a, a bipartisan issue. Um, you know, you know, constituents really, no one likes to uh, drive on, on a bad road, right? Like it can, it can really damage your car and it's obviously unpleasant and it, um, it, it, it it can be a, a worthwhile investment for for any party. Um, some of these uh, states generally are uh, a bit more uh, economically prosperous, a little bit richer. Uh, you know, California, New York, Massachusetts, which are all in the worst roads, um, come to mind. So, what's surprising about that is, you know, if if they are generating so much, uh, you know, uh, economic production and you know, theoretic and state you know tax revenues why are their roads in such poor shape and you know that kind of really comes back to this idea that the gas taxes is, is kind of a separate from a lot of the other uh lines um you know of funding for the state's revenue you know it's really surprising when you when you look at this score of the worst states the district of columbia it just it has red flags all over it. It's the, yes. it's the worst. I mean, it really is the worst road rough index where it has it at, at, at what, 65 points higher than the next leading one at California. Percentage yep. of road condition at 2% is good condition. The capital outlay is ranked number one. The uh, the lane mile, $107 per lane mile they spend. It's really, yep. it's remarkable yep. how inefficient, apparently, the District of Columbia is. <laughs> Just, I, I always get confused on the definition of ironic, but doesn't that see is is that the right, right. use of the word ironic? Right. Um, yeah, you know, D, uh, DC is interesting in, in that um, every other you know state is not just a metropolitan area, um, so they've got a mix of rural and urban and suburban um, going on, but DC is you know fully urban. Um, and all of those roads are getting hammered every day with people coming and going from, you know, Virginia, Maryland, um, you know, and other other places. So um, when you think about the context of it, it it, it makes more sense, right? Uh, it, again, if we know that the more usage you, your roads are going to get, the more you're going to have to pay to to maintain them, um, it makes sense. But it is so surprising to see how much worse they are, and it's so surprising to see that. Um, 83% of their roads are poor. Like that is a really mind blowing. Yeah. Um, and I truthfully haven't dug into, you know, why they're so poor, but I would imagine that there's, there's probably something about their, the revenue side of this equation. Yeah, it, it's almost unfair to, to list them with the other states just because they don't have the rural capacity as the other states, even California and, and Hawaii. And I mean, all of them, they're going to have some rural areas uh, and D.C. just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm speaking with Doug Milnes. He's the head of data analytics for Money Geek. We're talking about what states have the best and the worst road conditions. You can read all about this study, and you can get to that link here at the bottom of the, the description of this show. You also have in this study this uh, thing called the roughness score, and it's an interactive uh, part of the study page. So I could hover over California, and I, and I see their roughness is at, at 150.2, while Georgia is at 78.9. I think it's a good way to see how states differ across the country. 
Yeah, there's it, it's very interesting. You know, we can we can look at uh, you know we look at this graph and we see uh, there's a real spread, and, and this is a really interesting from a data perspective, an interesting thing when when you get this thing that looks like um, you know just a, a splotch or a shotgun blast like like this one where we're looking at the spend per vehicle mile versus the roughness, um, and you it just looks random. That's probably because it is random um so you what that what that tells me as an analyst is that you know gosh once i control for this sort of usage um i i would have expected to see a little bit more spending in some sort of a pattern like for example uh the states with uh, the highest roughness tend to be spending more um versus the states with the lowest roughness to be spending less, right? Like if I've got good roads, then I don't need to spend as much to, um, you know, maintain them. But if I've got awful roads, like, um, you know, California or Washington DC, you know, I, I should be trying to find um, dollars to spend there to, to kind of make it so that I can continue to operate my, my infrastructure. Um, obviously that's a, a little bit um, simplistic, right? Uh, Every state's got a, a complex set of uh, priorities, and they're they're trying to balance them. And there's a whole political process around by balancing those priorities. So, so maybe I'm not funding against it, but I, I think this is really interesting because it just basically says that after just maintaining the roads for their their usage levels, it's it's kind of a, a haphazard every state to their own um, approach. Yeah, and and some of the best uh, states like Florida is at 43. They spend eleven thousand uh, dollars compared to Georgia, right next door, spending forty four hundred, and they have uh, roads that are two spots better at forty five. And the, so, and, and you got to think they're somewhat comparable in in uh, population and size as well. So it, it doesn't necessarily and weather. You're not going to have a whole lot of big problems. Yeah, you, know, you get hurricanes, but it's not like here in Colorado where we're dealing with snow every day and you're putting plow blades down and scraping up roadways and then you have the freeze thaw cycle that that really beats them up yeah yeah it, it's a so I, I think that's a really interesting you know like it really boils down to like there are some state specific um issues going on here that once you you've sort of understood you know how much people are driving really drives your your spending um kind of after that it's you know individual priorities and what gets prioritized in the budget process. Um, really interesting. We all know about how rough roads cost money. We hear about it all the time. AAA sends out this information all the time, how it beats up our cars. It uh, causes problems with tires, with our brakes, with our shocks, all those maintenance issues. Um, and if we have congestion, it costs us more money just sitting on the roads. But are there broader right. impacts of road conditions on our communities or our local economies? You know, so uh, in general, it's taking money out of our our wallets is the biggest impact for for rough roads. There is a safety component here. Uh, like a, a tough road can uh, can lead to more accidents um, uh, over time. Uh, and then, obviously, the investment into those roads creates um, an economic a positive income uh, economic outcome because uh, those those road investments are you know, end up in, you know, the businesses who buy more services, or they end up in the, the wallets of, you know, individual workers who are going to go out and also uh, live their lives. So 
that's some of the ways that infrastructure can can impact our our communities, right? Like obviously, um, it was really interesting. There's a there's a nonprofit called Trip, and they published a report that I saw for California, which is the second worst roads in our analysis. And they said that it was costing individuals on the averages uh, $1,400 a year of additional maintenance costs to have such poor roads. Um, and obviously, that's it, a very big average over a large population of folks. Um, so you can anticipate that there's some people in California who really don't see any additional operating costs um, impacts because they are living in an area with good roads. But you could also imagine someone who lives in really awful uh, uh, roads paying much more than $1,400 a year of additional costs that they um, didn't have to pay, frankly. Yeah. And I think this COVID coming back around to the COVID thing, it, it reminds me, I, I did a story several years ago. I think it was in the state of Kansas or Missouri, where there was a community that had half of their roads that were basically dirt and the other half that were paved, but because the, the pavement was getting so bad and they didn't have money to fin- you know to, to finish paving the other roads and, and to really do the upkeep, they decided to go all roads, all dirt, all the time, just to uh, save some money and, and, and stop having all these pothole problems. But it seems that the COVID issue is really going to exacerbate that uh, in a lot of local communities. So it, it seems like local communities could get hit harder with not just the uh, lower revenue, but also having to try to fund roadways and without help from the state or the federal government. Right, yeah. right. Um, I think, it, you know... It, we're really thinking about the federal government when we think about uh, COVID. You know, I think some states are are doing the best. I I believe did did Colorado uh, pass like a relief measure recently? Yes, we Co- did. Yeah, in the state. Yeah, the state helped uh, some of the small businesses, and they've been actually giving out money, um, like the federal government did with the twelve hundred dollar checks. They've actually been yeah. giving out to uh, some individuals, low income individuals, uh, money as much as they can. Yeah, and it, that is a you know, when they looked at that, uh, that's really, you know, helps uh, a lot of folks in, in need, but is really a, not as as much as those folks might need. Um, and it's it's costly to a state budget that um, has to balance. And uh, one of the key differences between state and federal is, you know, state budgets really need to balance. They don't they don't get to print more money um, or borrow um, in the in the markets the way that the federal government is able to so when they when they want to raise money they have to raise bonds um you know uh and they have to pay those back with interest and yes the Amer- the federal government does but um that access to capital and the ability to spend is really in the hands of the federal government right now because so like you mentioned you know so much of the state and local uh revenues are are looking at shortfalls and it's going to be interesting to see how much traffic comes back. Do you think that traffic is going to start coming back as we have now the vaccine going out? People are going to be maybe more comfortable going uh, back to restaurants, have more shops and stores open up, less mask wearing, and then people starting to maybe go back to the office. Do you see the traffic picking up or did your uh, study not look into any of that stuff? We didn't anticipate, uh, we didn't look into that side of the, the study, but uh, it's a easy to say yes absolutely you know the the hardest part is the the when um on that but you know uh, it's not like um uh there are significantly less drivers um in in america today 
Um, and they're all going to come back and they're going to go back to their, their daily lives. And uh, there are more jobs out there that are just either uh, have to be uh, at a place of work or are much better at a place of work. And as soon as people get more comfortable with that and, um, you know, start patronizing, you know, restaurants, bars and all that good stuff, um, it should be back to normal. It'll be interesting to see if you do this study again next year, what the uh, what the spending, how it has changed, how the road conditions have changed, how the state list has changed. It'd be uh, I, I, I maybe uh, D.C. is so bad that they keep uh, keep their number one ranking, but I'm sure there'll be some shifting in the uh, in the other states. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Excellent. Well, Doug, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Doug Milnes, the, the head of data analytics for Money Geek, talking about what states have the best and worst roads. What's the best way for people to find out some more information about Money Geek and uh, find this study? Yeah, sure. You can find uh, uh, us at www.moneygeek.com. Uh, you can find the study at moneygeek.com slash living slash states worst road infrastructure. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's going to be in the bottom of the uh, uh, of the podcast here. That's right. We'll have it in the description, so you can just click the link, and boom, there you go. Thanks again, Doug, for your time and uh, your insights. Thanks so much for having me. Really a pleasure. Again, you can find that uh, link here on the description of this show. You can find it right there, uh, so you can click on it, moneygeek.com. We'll get you there as well. It's time to open up the mailbag, and I wish I had a special sounder for this. Uh, I have this question from David from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And David writes in and says, Hello, Jason. Love the show. Have you ever sneezed on camera? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question, David. The short answer is no. I don't recall ever sneezing on camera. I have done it on the radio, though, um, in the past. I think even in the helicopter. Um, but I don't ever remember sneezing on camera. I've come right, r- real close right before coming on. But you, I do that trick where you stick your finger under your nose, so you're, you know, not not, you know, not in it, but longwise under it, so it helps you not sneeze. Um, I've been on camera when somebody else, like one of the other anchors around me, has sneezed. I mean, sneezed so loud you could hear the sneeze on camera, and I'll say "bless you" or "gesundheit," because uh, because it was, it's definitely audible in that room. Um, and laugh, but as far as me, I, I can't recall a time where I have sneezed on camera. I actually think it's hard to sneeze when you're talking. Um, maybe that's why I haven't done it. Um, I, I don't know, but that's an interesting question. I've had sneezing fits before, uh, before being on camera, and I've had to go <laughs> my nose uh, to clear it out, but anyway... That's a that's an interesting question. Thanks, David, uh, for for the question. If you have a question or comment or concern, you could always leave me a voicemail at 303-832-0217. You could always drop me an email at drivingyoucrazypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or you could just um, send me a snail mail. You could send something. I think it, I'll still get it at the TV station. 123 uh, Spear Boulevard, Denver, Colorado, 80203. For as long as we're going to be there in the building anyway happy new year to everybody thanks again for listening thanks for being here and until next time i'm jason luber the traffic guy be safe and as always happy motoring